1 Kings chapter 19 and in the Bibles in the pews if you'd like to follow that way it's on page 360 sadly I don't think we'll be doing actions this time this is the traditional reading beginning to read at verse 1 Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servants there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled for forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant 
torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meloah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death anyone who escaped the sword of Hazel. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Thank you, Pam. I feel this message today needs to come with a kind of government health warning. That's got your attention. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, because the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. It's not about me, the fact I'm preaching it. It's about the fact it's God's word to us. And we're in a series on the whisper of God. And last week we looked at Samuel, who was called as a 12-year-old boy and heard the whisper of God in the darkness of night in the tabernacle and was used as a great prophet of God. And we said that God wants all his people in one sense to be prophets. Moses said that I would all of God's people were prophets. We showed that in the New Testament, the great apostle Paul to a church that was abusing spiritual gifts, told them to eagerly desire spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of prophecy. And we said that all of us can hear the whisper of God. In our evening series, and we had a remarkable time last week, we're looking at the whisper of God in the mornings. The cards are still available in the foyer. In the evenings, we're looking at equipped to serve, seeking spiritual gifts. And there's just one verse that tells us we should seek spiritual gifts from God. Eagerly desire spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of prophecy. Because it edifies, it encourages, and it equips. So why the health warning? Well, because we're going to touch on some incredibly delicate issues like depression, anxiety, disillusionment, discouragement, despondency, mental health issues. We've already interceded for people. Maybe you prayed that prayer and made it your own. These are deep issues. So please be prepared to allow the Word of God to open your heart and your mind wide. Why? So that His healing grace can come in. So that if there's an opportunity to be prayed for at the end, God can bless you, or you might want to pray for someone else, maybe even that person you prayed for, and you might want somebody to pray with and agree on that. So in a sense, that's a health warning. The whisper of God, hearing God's word and having the courage to respond, hearing God. And we come to this second message, a whisper on a mountaintop, and Pam has read for us this great story, and Beth told it to our children and young people in a different way, this story of Elijah, the great prophet. He's a prophet to King Ahab, but actually he's the prophet of God. He stand even to rebuke kings if God tells him to do that, and that's what he has to do, because Ahab has married a pagan queen, Jezebel, who worships the Baals, the god Baal and the god Asherah, uh, fertility gods, to which Children, including Israelite children, will be sacrificed as an act of worship. Evil, demonic, unthinkable. Nothing in the idol themselves, but evil spirits, demonic spirits, 
behind them. And Jezebel has been leading Ahab and the whole, the whole country astray. She feeds and cares for and gives money to at least 450 prophets. And if you go back to the previous chapter, if you go back from chapter 19 to chapter 18, just looking at the headings in the NIV, you'll see above verse 16, Elijah is on Mount Carmel. I'm going to be talking about at least three mountains today, arguably four, maybe even five mountains. But the first one is not the mountain Horeb or Sinai that Elijah flees to, because that's how far he gets, right down into the Sinai Peninsula of what we call Egypt, where Moses received on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, the Ten Commandments where Moses heard God speak. But actually, he starts here in chapter 18 on another mountain, Mount Carmel. And he takes on these demonic prophets and these demonic gods. He says in verse 24 of chapter 18, You call on the name of your God, little g, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God, capital G, the true God. And then what happens is he sets up this challenge that the land has uh, been without rain for so many years, there's drought, there's famine, because basically God is withholding grace because the people have rebelled. They've turned to these false prophets and these demonic, evil, false gods, and they're doing all kinds of detestable things. And God, like a loving father who's a God of love, he stands back and gives them over to it. And famine comes through a lack of rain. But Elijah is going to see this amazing victory because he says, set up, set up your altar. Cut up an oxen, offer it as a sacrifice on the wood, but don't put any light to it. Call the fire from heaven. Let's see who's God is truly God. And then I'll do the same. And he lets them go first. And all day they're crying out. They're slashing themselves with spears and with knives. They're, they're letting blood. And as they do that and they call upon their so-called God, who is no God at all, Baal, what uh, Elijah is doing is goading them. And in the Hebrew, you see, literally, he says things like, well, perhaps he's taking the day off. Perhaps he's just popped to the toilet. He's ridiculing them. He's taking the mick, to use a more colloquial expression. Sorry if you're called Michael. But there you go. That's what he's doing. Sorry, Michael. He's taking the mick. He's goading these prophets. And then at the end of the time where they've beseeched their God and nothing happens, he says, right, now get some water. I'm going to dig a trench around the altar. He builds the altar, including ten stones to represent the twelve tribes of Israel. The wood is put there, sacrifices the oxen, puts it on top, and he says, soak it with water. More, more water, more water. Until the trench around that shrine, that altar, is absolutely full of water. And then he calls fire from heaven. And his God, the one true God, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, he sends down this fire and it licks everything up, including the water in the trench, even the, the soil and even the stone, all the wood and the oxen, it's gone. And the result is this. He prays, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. The fire of the Lord fell and burned on the sacrifice. The wood, the stones and the soil were all also licked up and the water in the trench too. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate. They went flat on their faces and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Wow. Amazing victory. Incredible victory. But he finds himself in chapter 19 on another mountain, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, where Moses did hear God. 
And he finds himself absolutely in a dark place, a dejected place. So as we move on, in a sense, the first thing that we need to look at, and I want to go quickly through this, is Elijah's discouragement and his disillusionment. You'll see the the great painting by Frederick Layton, who lived 1830 to 1896, Elijah in the wilderness here. And you see that the artist has tried to capture the torment as the angel of God ministers. That's the image behind me. Because Elijah is so discouraged, he's so disillusioned, that we need to look at the causes. But before we look at the causes, and I'll go through the causes pretty quickly, I just want to say it happens. It can happen to any of us. Discouragement and disillusion. Anyone been a bit discouraged or disillusioned recently at all? Wow, there's some hands going straight up. And I guarantee there'll be some other people amongst us that didn't put their hand up, but they feel a bit discouraged or disillusioned. It comes to all of us. It happens. It's inevitable. It's a common experience. It's not life-changing, but I nearly had an experience like this yesterday when I was watching England play Wales. Sorry if you're Welsh. Yesterday was a good day for the city. I went to watch Plymouth Albion beat Coventry. Then on the big screen, I saw England a win against Wales. But also, Plymouth Argyle in their local derby against Exeter won 3-0. Whoop, whoop. So that's a good day. But you need to know that sporting heroes and heroines, they have their mountaintop experiences. They have some pretty dark valleys too. And if you know that as a sports person, you know that. It's not life and death. But as Bill Shankly, the Liverpool manager at the time, when he was asked, the way you talk about football, Mr. Shankly, it seems like a matter of life and death. He said, oh no, he said, it's way more important than that. Was that okay for a Scottish accent for you? All right. The causes, criticism and threat, fear and anxiety, exhaustion, physical, emotional and spiritual, anticlimax after a decisive victory, a sense of failure. Anyone ever had that one? Maybe you're right there, right now. Or what about this, a sense of isolation? All of these, all of these are Isaiah's, no, There might have been, but we're not talking about him. All of these are Elijah's experience at this time. Jezebel, we read in verse 3, has said she's going to have his guts for garters. That's not actually in the Bible, but I'll show you what I mean. Verse 2, Jezebel sends a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that, that of one of them. And the next three words in verse 3 just say this, Elijah was afraid. And next it says this, he ran for his life. Now, I'd better be very careful about saying, how can he have this victory against 450 prophets who are paid for by her, who eat at her table, who she has promoted to say the things she wants to hear when her husband Ahab calls Elijah a troubler of Israel and is looking for him to have him killed. And he has this amazing victory on Mount Carmel and then he gets afraid of his life and runs for his life because a woman speaks to him. This is not the moment for me to make a politically incorrect statement. But men, if you're listening, you know what statement I might make if I was going to be politically incorrect. Ever been terrified by the voice of a woman? Okay. See, I've gone and made it now. I'm in trouble, aren't I? The point is, she's just a woman. But the demonic power that comes with it, the vulnerability that is there, suddenly he finds himself afraid and he runs for his life. 
In the Hebrew, in the footnote, you've got, you've got a note there. He sees. He sees the danger that she means what she says. Fear and anxiety start to creep in. But let me tell you this. 1 John 4 and verse 18 is the verse we've been referring to. There is no fear in love, for perfect love drives out all fear. Isn't that beautiful? If you're afraid of something or someone today, there's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. What about this? 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on him, on God, on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for he cares for you. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Do me a favor. Let's get over our, our British, if we are Brits, let's get over our reluctance to do this in community. Would you turn to someone nearby, including someone that you don't know, and just say, he cares for you. Just say that. Go on, do it. He cares for you. He cares for you. He cares for you. Don't leave anyone out on the balcony. He cares for you. Okay? Listen, the God of creation cares for you. The maker of the universe cares for you. The one who defeated death cares for you. But let me tell you something. I hope it's not true for anyone in this building. But in all the churches across the country, if we did that this morning, and I think that wouldn't be a bad thing to do in every church in this country, someone would have that said to them, and it would be the first words, other than at the supermarket checkout, that any human being spoke to them this week. Because nobody knows them. There's no family left. They're isolated. They're lonely. It is a scourge of our time. And thank God that the church does make a difference. Thank God for secular so-called initiatives that make a difference for loneliness. But but Elijah here has been criticized, threatened. He's got fear and anxiety. He's exhausted physically, emotionally, and spiritually. There's an anti-climax after a decisive victory. He's got this sense of failure that he's run, and he hasn't turned the nation around as much as he wanted. He's losing his perspective, but he's got this sense of isolation. Listen to verse 3 again. I don't want to read into the Scripture, but in verse 3 we read, Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, that's a southern kingdom. Israel's a northern kingdom. He left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey further into the desert. Why did he leave his servant? I can't prove this. I want to make a suggestion. He couldn't even handle his own company, let alone the company of someone else. Been there? Well, you feel so down and so discouraged, you can't even stand your own company, let alone someone else's. Poor Elijah. Let's not look too deeply. There is a spiritual warfare going on here. The enemy of his soul behind Jezebel is the one who's called the tempter, the accuser, the adversary, Satan, the evil one. Trust me, there are such things as evil spirits and a demonic spirit called Satan. Trust me. Whatever post-enlightenment rationalism tells you, there is a world that we do not see. Our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly realms. But thank God, he who is in you, if you're a follower of Christ, is greater than he who's in the world. Amen? He's exhausted. Listen to chapter 18, verse 46. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah. Tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. The heavy rain has come. He told his servant to keep looking for a cloud. He sends the servant back seven times, which speaks of perfection. And the cloud comes, and then the rain starts. 
And Elijah warns Ahab, hitch up your chariot, go down before the rain stops you. But then he runs ahead of him and beats him back to Jezreel. How? Well, the power of the Lord came upon him. But I want to suggest, on a chariot, you can't take the shortcuts through the mountains. And that's what Elijah did. So I don't doubt the power of God. Something supernatural happened. But he's still a man. And he's exhausted physically. He's emotionally drained. He's spiritually exhausted from this battle on the mountain. And he's afraid for his life. Verses 7 to 9 say this. The angel of the Lord comes back a second time because God has sent Angelos. In, in the Greek, where in the Hebrew here, it's uh, someone Hebrew. Malachi, I think, for angels. But there's an angel, it means the same in the Greek and the Hebrew, it's a messenger of God. There is a messenger of God. And when this messenger comes a second time, verse 7, it touches him, the, the angel, and says, get up and eat, listen to this, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he then traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reaches Horeb, the mountain of God. 40 days and 40 nights. That reminds me of Moses, who's in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. Of the children of Israel, who are wandering in the desert for 40 years. Of Jesus, who is tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. Remember Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, because we're going to see them on a mountain at the end of this message. He's absolutely feeling isolated. He's lost his perspective. He has to be told by God at the end because he thinks he's the only one left. His perspective's gone. God says, I've saved 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee and kissed Baal. God's God. He's sovereign. He can take care of himself. And poor old Elijah was losing his perspective. And it gets worse, folks. Because you know what can happen with discouragement and disillusionment? If discouragement and disillusionment goes on and on and on, what does it lead to? It leads to depression and despair. And you see again an artist, Renaissance artist, trying to capture the exhaustion, the depression, the despair of Elijah. What are the characteristics of this? Let me give you some. A sense of inner emptiness and barrenness. A depleted energy level. Sometimes you don't even feel you can get yourself out of bed. A sense of humor that you've got normally. It just seems to go. It gets diminished. And, and it's replaced with self-pity. You know the downward spiral of... You can't get out of it. You can't think positively because you're just so self-pitying. You want to give up. And actually, he's saying, look, of all that I've done, what was the point of it? What have I achieved? His perspective has gone. And the negative thoughts and the feelings are per pervasive. They just dominate everything. And in the end, there's a renunciation. You, you kind of give up on responsibility even for yourself, let alone the kingdom, the king, the people of Israel, or whatever you and I are responsible to, we give up on responsibility for ourselves and any hope for the future. It is so bleak. This is heavy at the moment, isn't it? But the good news is someone after the nine o'clock said, thank you, Clive, for such an encouraging message. So I hope it's going to get better. Because I'm finding it heavy. Because as a pastor, I've sat with people. And you know part of the making of me as a minister... And I said I would never tell a living soul that I saw a doctor type on his screen, anxiety state, because I'm a rugby player and I don't have an anxiety state. I'm tough and hard, you know what I mean? And macho. 
and the Bernard family in Scarborough, we didn't have anxiety states, we just got on and did the business, you know? But a doctor did type anxiety state, and like an idiot, I'd nearly burnt myself out. Why? Trying to do all the good stuff, but not all the good stuff was God stuff, and I needed to learn to say no. So sometimes, church, I will say no. Just not very often, that's all. And when the doctor said to me, what do you do for rest and relaxation? The doctor had been through burnout himself and he knew I was on the verge of it. And I went and I never go to the doctor, except when I have a TIA or something like that. But um, I went saying, I've got a virus. He said, you haven't got a virus. I said, how do you know, doctor? With respect, you haven't done any tests. He said, tell me what you do for rest and relaxation. As I heard myself say, I used to play rugby and I used to play cricket. I thought, you idiot, all you do is work. Someone out there listening? These negative thoughts and feelings were so pervasive that it even lost hope for the future. Do you know what? In that doctor's office, not only did I say I'd, I'd never ever tell anyone about that, I thought I'd never hear the voice of God again. I was so burned and bombed, I thought I'd never hear the whisper of God again. But you know, it was a making of me a pas- as a pastor because... By God's grace, if you are in that place and you're sitting in my office, God taught me the hard way. Sometimes you just can't fix people. You just have to love them and sit with them. And sometimes, because I'm unorthodox, cry with them. Because that's what Jesus is like. And Job's comforters got it right to start with. They just sat in the dust with Job. They didn't try and tell him what to do. They sat in the dust with him. Ross is preaching that one because I'm not daft. I gave him the tough one. He's got the whole overview of the book of Job to do. All the best with that, Ross. <laughs> the depression and the despair and the things that characterize it. Verse 7, the journey is too much for you. Is your journey too much at the moment? Well, God might send you an angel, but for sure God's got one of the prayer ministry team or one of our pastoral staff members or an elder or me or Ross or someone else will pray with you this morning. It might not be an angel and we might not look and sound like an angel, but probably you need a bit of TLC. You need a little bit of bread and a little bit of water and a good night's sleep. Because you know there's truth in this. It will feel better in the morning. There's not all truth in this. Sometimes it feels much worse. We try and numb the pain, some people. They abuse drugs or alcohol. And they still wake up in the morning. Then they've got a hangover and all the problems are still there. And the thing that gave them some relief didn't, happen, didn't help. And so they get into a downward spiral and that leads to ad- addiction. But a whisper from God, whether from an angel or from God himself, can make all the difference. You see, verse 7, Elijah said, I just want to die. Can I tell you this as gently as possible? I buried two people who committed suicide. I never want to bury a third. Elijah asks God that he might die. He doesn't take his life. It is not good and it is not right. My life belongs to Christ. Your life, if you're a Christian, belongs to Christ. Elijah's life belonged to God. It's tragic when people do that and it's tragic for those they leave behind. And I'm not judging people. Don't misunderstand me. There's too much much of that in the history of the church where people who took their own life weren't allowed to be buried in sanctified ground, in hallowed ground. But that's how dark it can get. But let me tell you this. What can we do? 
Well, God who says to Elijah, what are you doing here? I don't think he's just talking geography. When God says, what are you doing here? I think he's saying, how did you get to this place? Not just a hundred miles south. He's gone further, 40 days and 40 nights to the mountain of God. Uh, What are you doing here? Well, maybe we could say he wanted to hear the voice of God. Like Moses heard the voice of God when Moses got the Ten Commandments on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. But I'm not sure. I think it was wanting to be as far away from Jezebel as he could. He'd lost his perspective. He felt self-pitying. The downward spiral had led him there. And God says, what are you doing here? And sometimes God says to me, what are you doing here? Why are you thinking like that? Why are you in this place? And it's about more than geography. Are you with me? Anyone else relate to this? And here's something that might help. Because what God does is he cares for his needs. You'll see that in a minute. But before we get there, let's have some New Testament, New Covenant thoughts on this. The great apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5 says this. We demolish arguments to do with language and thought and every pretension that's to do with the brain and functioning that sets itself up against the knowledge of God that's to do with thinking we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ listen to the same apostle in the New Testament the New Covenant we're in Philippians 4 thank you we're in Philippians 4. do you know I've had hallelujahs amens but I've never had a bark before that's amazing <laughs> Philippians 4 That's an agreement from a dog. That's wonderful. (laughs) Philippians 4, 8 to 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. It's not the full answer, but actually taking thoughts captive and filling your minds with beautiful things and faith-building things and the truths of God, they are a protection against this negative, self-pitying downward spiral. Are you with me? In 1952, Norman Vincent Peale wrote a book, many of you have heard of it, called The Power of Positive Thinking. We now have therapies and remedies called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, CBT. We have uh, Neuro Linguistic Processing, NLP. These are not the same, but they are drawing on the fact that we need to get our thinking right and more positive, and we need to do that in a way. It's all in the Bible before anyone came up with CBT and NLP, and thank God that they did, but it's all in Scripture. Are you with me? Because the God who's given us this love letter is the God who whispers to you in a dark place on a mountain in a cave and he calls you out and he says, what are you doing there? I want to talk to you. And he doesn't talk. I'm frightened they're going to do it now. He doesn't talk through the wind or the earthquake or the fire. But he talks through verse 12, a still small voice in the King James Version, in the NIV, a gentle whisper. A gentle whisper. So we've looked at the causes of discouragement and disillusionment. We've looked at the characteristics of depression and despair. But we need to look at Elijah's return to a dependence on God and a discernment of God's will. Because that's what I want. I want to move on to the positives now for you. Because you might be sitting there drawing parallels and thinking, 
I'm more depressed than, than I realized. And this sermon's not helping at all. I feel worse than when I came in. Came here to have my spirits lightened and this pastor is all gloom and doom today. Thank you, Clive. But listen, one whisper from God can make all the difference. One whisper from God can make all the difference. Say that with me, please. One whisper from God can make all the difference. Elijah's trust and faith is stirred up as he hears the whisper of God on a mountain, on Mount Horeb, because in verse 12, we see that he covers his face as he's called out of the cave, because no one can see the face of God and live. And God's going to pass by. But God doesn't speak through the earthquake or the wind or the fire, no. Verse 11, God calls him into his presence. This is so beautiful. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Last week I said we need to practice the presence of God. There's nothing like the presence of God. Did you feel his presence in the worship earlier? Do you sense his presence now? Because I've got to go home if you don't. And a still small voice, King James Version, a gentle whisper, New International Version of verse 12, comes to him. But you know, even before that, God's care and compassion has come to him. I don't have time to unpack this, but God's care and compassion comes by sending the angel to give him sleep, to give him food, to give him water. But you know, if we only get the physical needs dealt with, that's not enough. God's care and compassion... Yes, he gives the sleep. Yes, he gives the food. Yes, he gives the water. But then God speaks. And you know, Jesus stood by a well, thirsty, and the disciples had gone into town in Samaria. This is in John chapter 4, to get food. And they come back with it. And they're urging Jesus, who's speaking to a woman, because God has sent him there, because he heard the whisper of God to go to this woman. And he heard the whisper of God say, ask her. The father is saying to the son, ask her about, about where's her husband. And then the whisper of God reveals to God the Son. She's had a lot of men and none of them were a husband. And the one she's got now isn't a husband. And the disciples come up to Jesus. They urge him to eat. And in John 4.34 he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. And that's what Elijah needed to hear. What is the will? What is your will, Father God? What work have you still got for me to do? Not, oh, woe is me, just take me, I'm finished. But God doesn't rebuke him. Jesus, by the way, in Matthew 4 and verse 4 and Luke 4 and verse 4 says this, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know what? Thank God that we've got uh, a soup run. Thank God that we partner with others. Thank God for the Lord's larder that we've asked you to bring tins about. Thank God for the recovery ministry and Gaffer's Gorge. Thank God for the family's ministry that we give food and we give drink and we care for people and meet their needs. Amen? That's good, isn't it? But man will not live by bread alone. And if we feed people in this life, but we never share the word of God with them, we might patch them up in this life and let them down for eternity. You with me? Holistic mission doesn't mean doing nice stuff without sharing the gospel. That's not holistic mission. That's not mission. It's just being nice. And no one was nicer than Jesus who said that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So it's both and. 
And God's care and compassion, let's just have that point up please Tim, is shared. But then God's counsel and recommissioning comes. God's counsel and recommissioning. God reminds Elijah of who he is and what his purpose is. He tells him he's going to anoint Hazael, king of Aram, a pagan king, but who will be, in a sense, a friend of God. He's going to anoint Jehu, the new king of Israel, to take over from Ahab. And this will be a good king. But he's also going to share the ministry. In fact, he's going to mentor a new prophet called Elisha. He'll have a double portion of his anointing. And he will be used, therefore, to continue the plan and the purpose of God. And God loves him so much, he raises up other people to do the work. But he reminds him, Elijah, I've got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. You're saying you're the only one left? That's not true. You're going to anoint Elisha for me. And I'll take the work off you. Not because he's, he's dissatisfied with his, his child, the servant, the prophet, Elijah. No, because he knows the work is too much. And one of the things that ministers are most guilty of is failing to recognize, as one person put it, there's no success without a successor. Do you know that? There's no success without a successor. So if I don't prepare the way for whoever it might be, to follow on from my ministry in some way I've let the church down. Because it could come at any time. And by the way, one beautiful thing, one absolutely beautiful thing. You know that he anoints Elisha as his successor. You know that he's prayed that he might die. He never gets that prayer answered. Do you know why? Oh, I'm going to indulge myself now. It's captured in a hymn that when you're an England supporter, you love to sing. And it goes like this. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Thanks for joining in. Sorry to the Welsh, Irish, Scottish and Italians in here. But I just want to say this. That is drawn straight from 2 Kings chapter 2, 11 to 12, where Elijah says, let, 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 let me see you, let, let me see And he's caught up, is Elijah in chariots that God sends from heaven, chariots of fire that come to carry him home. He doesn't taste physical death. He's translated, and I guess on the way up, he gets whatever the spiritual body he'll have in that place where he's with God. Isn't that awesome? And so I love it when I'm, you know, there at an England match, and I think, at last, I've got him singing hymns. It's fantastic, you know? Elijah has to deal, however, with doubt. And I've got five minutes to drive this wonderful encouragement home for you and for me. You see, Elijah did have doubts. Anyone out there ever have doubts? Anyone told you it's a sin to have doubts? Because it's not. Unbelief is a sin. Refusal to accept God. The unforgivable sin is rejecting Jesus Christ as the only Savior. That's the only unforgivable, unpardoning sin. That's a sin against the Holy Spirit. There's always forgiveness. There's always grace. There may be doubts, but faith may come in the morning. Doubting is not sinful. Listen to this beautiful story in Matthew 17, verses 1 to 13, because it's uh, taking place on another mountain. So we've gone from Carmel and the prophets of Baal and the great victory to Mount Horeb and the wonderful whisper of God. And now we go to the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament. Verse, uh, chapter 17 of Matthew, verse 1. After six days... Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. He led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the 
light. Just then there appeared before them Moses, who'd been in a desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and Elijah, who'd gone through a desert for 40 days and 40 nights, talking with Jesus, who was tempted by Satan in a desert for 40 days and 40 nights. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Just like me and like many of you, Peter's an activist. Oh my word, there's Moses, there's Elijah, there's Jesus. Quick, do something. I'll put up a tent. You know, men, activists, we want to do something. Some women are like that too. But you know what God wants? He wants them to listen to his whisper. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. You listening to Jesus? I don't mean now while Clive's speaking, I'm just Clive, but you listen to what Jesus is saying. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. Just as God said to Elijah, I'm not finished with you, you're not done. I've reserved 7,000. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah has come. That's John the Baptist he's talking about. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod. He was put in prison. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. You know, Elijah had his doubts. John the Baptist had his doubts. A friend and brother of mine told me in the pastoral meeting this week that in Matthew 11 we get this wonderfully tender story of the fact that John the Baptist, like Elijah, tired, exhausted, depressed, is in prison. He's about to have his head severed from his body and the doubts come and he sends his disciples to say to Jesus, are you really the one? Jesus doesn't say, yeah, of course I am. Go and tell him it's okay. Yeah, I'm the Messiah. No, Jesus said, tell him what you see and what you hear. The good news is preached. The blind receive their sight. The dead are raised. The sick are healed. Because then he knew John the Baptist would go back to the word of God, to Isaiah's prophecy, to what Jesus read out from Isaiah's prophecy in his own town in Luke 4, where he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news. To open the eyes of the blind, to set the captives free, to proclaim the year of blessing for those who are oppressed. These words are fulfilled in your hearing. I am the Messiah, he was saying. Do you know, you tell me how the Bible can, can show such synchronicity. As I, by the Spirit's grace, I'm trying to put this message together. How does God weave this amazing story into this beautiful, wonderful book, this love letter from heaven? I don't know, but he does. Here's my final question. How about us? How about you and me? Disillusioned? Anxious? Depressed? Maybe not today, and please God, not tomorrow or the day after. But the days will come. 
Maybe not clinical depression. I don't have time to talk about that. That's a completely different thing. But we will get down and we will get low. We will get discouraged and we will get disillusioned. But I want to remind you of this. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. There's no fear in love. For perfect love drives out all fear. I'm going to ask the band to come back now. It is 12. We have children to pick up. Make sure you pick up your own and not someone else's. But I don't want us to rush. And you can blame my much-loved friend and colleague and brother Ross for this, because he said, I think I've got a word for you. He heard the whisper of God in the worship earlier, and he said, you sometimes say to me, Clive, back myself. That's God's word to you today. So how's that going to work out? There are some people here who need for themselves or for a loved one or a friend or a neighbor or a colleague to get prayed with, to get prayed for. There's tissues here. There's people who will pray for you. It will not affect me if not a single person comes to prayer. I don't measure the fruitfulness of the preaching by that. But if you are there and it's not the kind of thing you do this day, just be prayed for. Just respond to God. If you're in the balcony, it's a long journey, but still come down. So Ellie's going to lead us in a song, and I just want to ask people to come forward. If you really just can't, I say this every time, stay where you are, but please send someone or get someone to pray with you where you are. But otherwise, respond to the whisper of God and let him touch your life. Let's pray. Father, I want to ask, even though time has gone, and we can pronounce a final blessing at any stage, but now, Lord, you'd move amongst your people and upon your people and through your people as we pray for each other and for anyone who's had issues opened up, like those little caveats on television, if you have had issues as a result of this program, If somebody's being touched by this message, Lord, cause them, encourage them, lovingly woo them to respond not to me but to you. In Jesus' name.